As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views given on the following program are not necessarily the views of the station management or staff. Since individual situations can and will be different, please remember this when exercising any options presented by our guests. Success is equated with success. The ambition for excess wrecks us. As the top of the line becomes the bottom line, where success is equated with excess. This is Money Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. Bringing life back into balance with a more thoughtful approach to wealth management. Now, from Capstone Wealth Management, here's Chris Klein on the big 1070, 1070 AM and 100.9 FM. All right, welcome back in. It is indeed another week. I am Mike Pilch, along with Chris Klein of Capstone Wealth Management. We'll get you updated on everything that has happened in the world of finance. And as always, we'll give you the best advice there is out there for investors. 866-596-9886 is the phone number to get in touch with Chris Klein at any time. You can always email him. Info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. And check about on Twitter at careformywealth. I am at MD Pilch. You can just call me Dr. Pilch if you'd like. Think of it that way. And that's the way we do things. Chris, welcome into the first truly gorgeous weekend we have had this year. Doctor? Doctor? Doctor. That's right. <laughs> that reminds me of a funny, a funny part of, of uh, what movie was that from? Um, I don't know. Doctor. Oh, Caddyshack. Caddyshack. Remember uh, when they're all doctors standing around and they said, oh, doctor. Oh, doctor, yeah, doctor. yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Gosh, it's anyway, funny you morning. say that. I've got YouTube pulled up right now, and it's got a clip from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and there's just a picture of Phoebe Cates there. So I'm staring at the picture of 1982 Phoebe Cates, and my mind's <laughs> drifting off. Um, anyway... A lot to get to this week. It's been a quiet time in the markets over the past, I guess, month because we had so many highs, so many rallies, and now things have come down more towards a standstill. And you're seeing a lot of disappropriate values happening right now in the markets, and you're seeing things that you're calling bubbles happening out there right now. Well, here's what's interesting. So um, 
you might remember, we started talking about some of our internal indicators that identify when risk has started to bubble over. And we call one of them the UW index. We call another one an SD spread. SD stands for smart, dumb money. And, and so when we get a UW index inde- uh, indicator, what that suggests to us internally is that risk levels from a momentum perspective have started to get a little bit elevated. And it, and it points towards the, the higher probability that markets are going to do one of two things. They're either going to march sideways or they're going to correct. And, and so when we get that, what we have to do is make a determination internally of what other elements are, are stacked up that could potentially cause the market to correct versus move sideways. So you might remember, and, and anyone listening can go back and, and research this by simply going to our website, careformywealth.com, click on resources and listen to some of our old shows. <laughs> that would so, do it. Yeah. So we, we got this UW index trigger uh, back towards end of February, beginning of March, in that range. And if you look at what markets have done for the most part since that time, I mean, for example, the S&P 500 was at about 2,400 at the beginning of March. And yesterday it's like at 2,350. So markets have moved sideways in a fairly and slightly downward fashion. We haven't gotten the degree of correction that we thought might have come so far but we still have high degrees of elevated risk and the SD spread that I talked about a moment ago, the smart dumb money indicator, what that does is it tells us when we think it's, it's safe to get all back in. And, and yeah. we haven't yet had that SD spread triggered to suggest to us that this thing might be over. So it's a good thing. Cause a lot of your things have been triggering lately. Well, they have, you know, and, and it's a frustrating time from an investment management standpoint because Earnings are looking pretty good so far, and, and that's always a valuable resource, and it's certainly valuable you know, from a, from a market perspective in, in terms of it doing well mm-hmm. over a period of time. And, and at the end of the day, that's why you buy an investment, an equity anyways, is because of future earnings prospects. And so far, they're, they're not so bad. Um, but with that said, there's still a high degree of risk that's, that's pent up in the market. Markets have been very clearly on edge about wanting some degree of tax reform and, and whether we get that or not, is hard to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably saw some news snippets that came out yesterday that president Trump has suggested that sometime next week, they're going to unveil their tax package, which if they do, that's great. You know, I think markets will be excited about it, but at the same time, as we know from what has happened so far as it relates to the healthcare scenario, it's a really long uphill battle with the train wreck that exists in Washington, D.C. So, yeah, my you know, my attention hasn't been on tax reform. It's been what's going on in Korea and everywhere else. So, Yeah, you know, I get questioned on that a lot. Hey, do you think that, you know, Korea is going to do this or do you think we're going to go to war? And my answer to that is, nope, I don't. And if we do, I just don't see it being a serious long-term negative, at least not at this point, as it relates to what's happening in markets. Markets have that sort of stuff priced in to one degree or another. If they didn't, they'd be pricing it in right now because of all the the just the hubris that seems to be going on from from both sides, from everywhere, right? Everyone knows that Kim Jong-un is nuts. There's not a person on the planet who has money invested that doesn't recognize that. And markets don't blow up with known unknowns. They blow up with the unknown unknowns, the things that no one sees coming. Right. So I'm not overly worried about the whole thing as it relates to 
high tensions and, and North Korea, South Korea, China, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, what we're focused on are, of course, earnings and what's happening in that regard. We're focused on what appears to be this craze that continues to happen for passive indexing. You know, we're starting to ask ourselves whether or not is that the, tu- the new tulip bulb mania? And, and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. You mentioned at the beginning of the show some disproportionate types of, of, of um, uh, in, some disproportionate types of, of values as it relates to indexes. And these are things, Mike, that people don't see. You're probably not aware of this, and if you were, I'd be totally stunned because nobody talks about this stuff. But 52, almost 53% of the advance that has taken place in the S&P 500 in 2017 has happened in only 10 companies. Mm, not shocking, really. Philip Morris, which I found interesting. Mm. I mean, that's not typically the type of company that you would expect to be leading the pack no. in terms of total return. True, true. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's true. You know, so Philip Morris, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Oracle, Visa, Johnson & Johnson, Alphabet, which, of course, is Google, uh, Procter & Gamble, and the 10th one, I think, is Microsoft. Those are the 10 companies that have made up over half of the index's gains for the first part of this year. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us? That tells us that there's a tremendous amount of money being driven into very, very small amounts of companies, which, of course, can end badly. If, if most of your gains have come from 10 companies and something should happen to cause a number of them to, to get hit in terms of their stock price, well, then, of course, the index is going to hit, too. So... What I want to try and do today is, is at least I'd help people identify, or at least how to identify a bubble, what it looks like, whether or not we might be in one, and then talk about what we think could be potentially looming in terms of a bubble. And the closest thing that we see to a bubble right now is what we would call a craze as it relates to passive indexing. Okay. And so the difference between passive indexing, of course, is you just pile your money into an index fund and forget about it versus active management, which is what we do, which is identifying where we believe to be the least risk with the most reward opportunity, and then taking advantage of it and making adjustments as markets dictate. All right, the let's... Passive, let's the oh, passive indexing just causes some potential issues as it, as it blows, so we'll see yeah, how it goes. Uh, passive, uh, passiveness in your business is never good. Not usually. No. Sometimes, Sometimes, not often, but sometimes the best answer is, don't do something, just stand there. Yes. Well, I, I get it, but you're not being <laughs> passive. You're at least kind of, you know, you, you've at least got your attention on what's going on, I guess. Let's right. put it that way. Exactly. All right. Exactly. He is Chris Klein. I am Mike Pilch. We'll have more discussion of this in a moment. Also, are taxes worse than people really think? Is that possible? And more on these uh, bubbles and the advanced disproportionate values we're seeing in the S&P and other places. He is Chris Klein. I am Mike Pilch. And this is Muddy Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. Some like beautiful, perfect and pretty. I see the good in the bad and the ugly. I am Mike Pilch. He is Chris Klein. This is Muddy Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. To get in touch with Chris Klein, you can do it a number of ways. 866-596-9886 is the phone number. You can also email him, info at careformywealth.com. 
It's info at careformywealth.com. And he's starting to tweet a lot more when he sees things happening throughout the course of the week in the markets. You can follow him on Twitter at careformywealth. That is at careformywealth. I am at MD Pilch. So again, think of me as Dr. Pilch. Chris, uh, let's identify some of these bubbles that we're seeing in the market. Yeah, so I'm not sure that there's a pile of, of bubbles happening at this point. What I'd like to do is just talk about how to identify them. And so that way, as an investor, as they start to happen, you can become more, um, you can get better at identifying these things. If you can identify a bubble before it happens, then you're going to be way ahead of the average investing crowd. Because the things that blow you up are the things that take markets down 30, 40, 50%, like, you know, the dot-com bubble of 1999. That, that was the first bubble I ever saw. I, I was born in 1970. So, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> I, I made it, you know, into my uh, almost, you know, 30 years of age before really ever seeing, an, uh, you know, one of these kinds of bubbles. And, um, you know, we talk about bubbles that happened in the 80s, and commercial real estate, of course, was crazy in the 80s, but nobody called it a bubble back then. I mean, shoot, they didn't even call it a crash when it crashed. So, so. The bubbles have been around forever. They, they're nothing new. Um, you know, I talked about the uh, the tulip bulb mania that took place, the, the the Dutch tulip bulb mania that I'm sure most people recognize exists. You can do a Google search on it and just see what took place. I mean, people were exchanging just ridiculous amounts of money for tulip bulbs, of all things. And sometimes I equate that to what happened with the dot-com bubble because people were exchanging ridiculous sums of money for phantom earnings. Right, (laughs) right, exactly. You know, they weren't there. So, you know, if you asked, I guess, maybe just a common person on the street that, you know, if you said, hey, um, you know, what do you think about bubbles? If I had to guess, I'd say they'd probably tell you that there were three, four, five different bubbles going on right now, you know, and... I guess on one hand, there might be some truth to that, but there's also some falsehoods in that same thing, too. Um, the true part of that statement might be that there are a lot of things that are currently overvalued. Okay. And we've talked about how there are some overvaluations that have snuck into markets. For example, we have said for some time that stocks are currently overvalued. Been saying it for a long time. Yeah, you know, but that is a very big wheel that turns the ship very, very, very slowly. And I think at least most people who pay attention to this sort of stuff, if I told them, hey, stocks are overvalued, they'd probably agree. Mm-hmm. I say, and I think bonds are overvalued. And that's just a function of what's happened with interest rates and, and where we are. And if I said that to an average person, some of them might agree. I don't think that that would be a majority. I think corporate credit is overvalued. There's real estate, certainly in certain parts of the country that's overvalued, and absolutely in parts of the world. Well, right now, isn't it a significant seller's market? I know somebody looking for a house in Madison. He said, it is brutal right now. It is such a seller's market. It's brutal right now. Uh, It can be, yeah. I mean, there's certainly, um, I think it's more of a seller's than a buyer's, you know, for what that's worth. Um, I mean, you start looking at worldwide real estate, things that are happening in Canada and Australia are absolutely crazy. I mean, those markets are absolutely in bubble territory. But what I just talked about as far as stocks and bonds and corporate credit and real estate in some markets, those are overvaluations. Those are not bubbles. 
there's a huge, huge difference. I got so, you. Okay. So the question that many people might be asking themselves right now is, okay, well, what's the difference between something being overvalued and something being in a bubble? Well, a bubble is a psychological phenomenon, and, and it simply occurs when an asset class becomes overvalued and it's an accompanied by an obsession or maybe even a preoccupation with that asset class. For example, how many people do you hear talking about the fact that, hey, the Dow's at 20000 Not many. It's not a bubble. <laughs> nobody's obsessed and nobody's certainly extremely preoccupied with the stock market. I mean, let's face it. You don't have your local Uber driver uh, picking you up and talking about their day trading exploits like they did in 1999. And it wouldn't have been Uber. It would have been just a cabbie. Right. right? That was a bubble. I mean, in fact, I mean, nobody really, nobody really cares about the stock market right now. You, know? you don't hear it, many people talking about it. It doesn't even come up on the news wires very much right now. It doesn't. In fact, you know, there's a half a dozen TVs on at the gym that I go to, and they're never tuned into CNBC, Bloomberg, or now, that's like interesting. That. Not even one. Not even one. That's it's new. E- it's either on the Sci-Fi Channel of all things. The Weather Channel is always on. Oh wow! Uh, ESPN or another major sports channel, and one of those redo-it-yourself home shows or whatever HGTV probably. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That. So nobody cares. And so, that's interesting that one's not on by default. That's interesting. Nope, it's not, you know, and, and, and anyone can change the channels in, in the gym that I go to. The, the, the remotes are Velcroed to the wall. You want to change it? Change it. You know, it's no big deal. So by that standard, there are probably very few bubbles in the world right now. But there, there really is a, a bull market in people running around calling everything a bubble. <laughs> so... So what we have to do as investors is we've got to ignore those people. I mean, the only real honest-to-goodness asset price bubbles that are out there in residential real estate that exist, as I mentioned a moment ago, are probably in Canada and Australia and maybe Sweden. So if you happen to be listening to us streaming live on iHeart.com and you live in Canada or Australia, Mm -hmm. you're probably in a property bubble. And that means you might be at a time very similar to what we were here in the United States back in 2008. Six or, or 2007 when everybody believed that home prices could only go in one direction, right? So the point there, of course, is that if people don't pay attention to this sort of stuff, that's when they end up in the ash heap of, of investment history, right? Gotcha. Um, well, yeah, all- yeah, again, you got to comp- you got to pay attention to everything. <laughs> Sometimes more than you'd like to pay attention to, you're right. You know, I mean... Bubbles happen in some of the craziest, strangest things, too. I don't know if you realize this or remember it, maybe, but you being, you being the history buff that you are, if anyone knows this, you would know this. But there was a bubble in video games in the early 80s. You remember that? Uh, explain. I mean, I was a little thing in the early 80s. so. Well, so back then, I mean, people, in, including me, everybody was, was super excited. At the and arcades and, and Coleco coming out and all that stuff. Probably Atari twenty six hundred video. Game. I remember getting that about nineteen eighty six <laughs> or eighty seven. I remember getting it. I was thrilled. I can remember the commercial. We. I remember being a kid, being super, super excited about Atari. The old that, school eighties rap. It's twenty six hundred yep. from Atari. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Go ahead. It's good stuff. Well, what'd that do? Well, that led Atari to well. They got way out over their skis 
and they produced way too many games, and they ended up with just a boatload of excess inventory. And so what's funny about this, it's not funny because the company had a hard time, but what's funny about it to some degree is that the situation was so embarrassing to Atari that they literally dumped all these video games in a landfill in New Mexico in the middle of the night. <laughs> I didn't hear this. No, I didn't know this. Yeah, the games were actually excavated by archaeologists, of all things, over 30 years later, and they used them for a documentary. Oh, yeah, okay, I've heard bits and pieces of that. Okay, I have heard so, part of that. Yeah, I mean, these bubbles can happen in, in really, really strange things. Another interesting thing, concurrent with the dot-com bubble, actually, and you might remember this, was the Beanie Baby bubble. You remember that yeah, one? I do, yep, I do. I got a lot of less tension than... Never understood maybe. it, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't either. It, it it didn't get the same attention that maybe it should have just because everyone was preoccupied with stocks at the time. But I remember there was a photo that went around for a while, um, and it was a picture of a couple getting a divorce, and they were in court literally on their knees separating and moving around their beanie babies because it was part of the divorce settlement. Okay. <laughs> Crazy stuff. So that's a bubble, right? Now, if you think everything's a bubble you're going to miss out on bull markets. And so the only thing that I want to make sure people recognize is the fact that if you think everything is a bubble, you're going to be too afraid to do anything. And to some degree, that's certainly one of the reasons why people have, have decided to work with us is they, they can take their eyes off of the emotion of whether or not we are or are not in a bubble and just let someone who does this every day figure it out. One of the consequences that I think will exist for a very long time, uh, a consequence of the financial crisis, that is, is, is that there, there is, there's been this psychological scarring that's taken place. And people are going to, for a very long time, confuse legitimate bull markets with bubbles. It, it, it's so easy to happen. I mean, yeah, I get, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had this happen to me in a, in a smaller degree recently. Where, you know, you start looking around and, you, you know, you brought up real estate in the Madison market. Now, I don't live directly in Madison, but I've seen more than a few fairly rapid price increases in residential real estate. And, and so I started thinking about, man, maybe I should sell my house. It might be, this might be a bubble. And then I caught myself and said, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know that that's true because you certainly don't see people, at least here locally, running around in, uh, you know, brand new circuits of seminars talking to you about how they are in the process of living the dream and retiring early simply due to flipping houses anymore. Does it happen? No, yeah. you, you don't hear much about the house flipping at all. Hasn't that thing kind of gone by its wayside now? It's certainly not like what it was. Does it happen? It does, but it's yeah. not like every you know six pages of the local newspaper or every fourth ad on the radio or TV talks about someone and why you should attend their their seminar. If you're a multimillionaire in Hollywood, you can still do it, probably. Probably. Other than you that, know. it's going to be tougher. Yeah. If I had to guess, property, houses, residential real estate, probably not a bubble. If I had to guess, it's probably just a very healthy bull market. And, you know, you can make the case that for, you know, the, at least the residential real estate that I've seen locally uh, that affects me personally, it, they probably just have been chronically undervalued for a while and they're just continuing to get back into a more normal range of valuation. But so many people have been so, you know, so 
so scarred and so traumatized by this crisis, the financial crisis, that likely for the rest of many people's lives, bull markets are literally going to make people nervous. They're, they're just going to be worried about it. And, and I say that's too bad simply because, I mean, that's no way to, to invest. That's no way to play a bull market. You know, it, you can't allow yourself to be so feared that by every uptick, you think the next crash is coming, you know. And for most people who are not professional investors or who choose to not work with a firm like ours where we simply drive the truck where you would like us to take you, mm-hmm. the worst thing most people can do is just be trigger happy. And, and, I, and I hear from more than a few people, you know, that are a little trigger happy in the way in which they're handling, you know, their 401k or their retirement account that they're dealing with, maybe a SEP account or simple or something like that. I mean, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Most of the time, you should be fairly focused on clearly the long term. The problem is, is that most people take their eyes off the long term when they get scarred by a crisis like what we had to deal with. And so... How do you identify a bubble? It's super, super, super simple. You have asset price appreciation, which is going on a number of asset classes right now, but you have to see the connection with the psychological phenomenon, which would clearly be an obsession or a preoccupation with that asset class. Gotcha. If you're seeing rapid price appreciation in whatever asset class that you think is a bubble, and you're hearing everybody talk about it over and yeah. over and over again. If yeah. it's being brought up at cocktail parties and, and your mom calls you and says, hey, did you see the Dow hit 20,000? Get out, man. That's a problem. Yep. It, you know, it, chances are, real, unless your mom's a professional investor, <laughs> if not, then chances are really good that, that you, you, you know, you're, you're in that mix. So the only thing that we're seeing right now that we think could even potentially be close to what would be viewed as a bubble is passive indexing. And, and there is an intense focus right now on passive versus active investing. And I think what's happening is it's setting investors up for, for a meltdown. And, and I mean that for a number of reasons, but at the end of the day, when, when, you're trying to, when you're trying to keep up with, with the constant feedback that's created by the news cycle, you know, mm-hmm. the mainstream media has reduced the concept of active investing to outperforming an index minute by minute, hour, day, week, month, quarter, whatever period you're, you're looking at. And that's really unfortunate. You know, they, they bring up studies that show that managers don't outperform passive indexes all the time, that, you know, helping, helping investors with, a, with an active approach just 
isn't going to get you to where you want to go. And, and so that they come to this conclusion, I think short-sightedly, that, that you should only invest in passive low-cost index funds. Well, you know, the, the, the trend is pretty well confirmed with at least capital flows that we see from active to passive. And it's been accelerating as, the, as this bull market has been extending. So what we think is a, is a very big problem is the media continually pounding this, saying that if you're not outperforming whatever index you want to talk about, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Dow, by whatever period you want to talk about, short, you know, daily, weekly, quarterly, to longer, yearly, then whatever you're doing is wrong. Well, <laughs> that's a huge problem. And the biggest problem is, is that for the most part, most active managers who, who do benchmark against an index, and not many of them do, by the way, but most active managers who benchmark against an index are typically going to have a goal of outperforming the benchmark over a really long period of time. Sure. And in most cases, in a raging bull market, there are a number of active managers that keep up with passive but, but don't beat it. It's in the really bad markets that you see active management outshine the passive side of things. All and right. so there's danger lurking in passive investing. We'll talk about that a little bit when we when we get back. We'll also talk about why taxes are worse than people really think. You didn't think it was possible? Oh, oh, it's possible. He is Chris Klein. I am Mike Pilch. And this is what it I am Mike Pilch, along with Chris Clyde of Capstone Wealth Management. We're with you till 10 o'clock when Big Sports Saturday takes over. Only I can go from uh, Hailstorm in one break to Lady Gaga in another, Chris. So only I am capable of such silliness. Highly trained radio professional. That's what, that That's what I pay you to say every week. That's right. <laughs> Um, 866-596-9886 is the phone number to get in touch with Chris anytime you'd like. Also, email him at any time, info at careformywealth.com. That's info at careformywealth.com. Check him out on Twitter at careformywealth. We were talking about a lot of passive uh, passiveness that we see people involved in the markets have sometimes, and you left off about the dangers in passive indexing, Chris. So let's get into that a little deeper. Yeah, uh, it, we do see some dangers lurking in passive indexing. I mean, so basically, it, passive indexes generally, not always, of course, it depends on the management style, the degree of risk that's being built into the portfolio that the active manager might be employing. There's a whole host of things to, to watch here. But passive index can outperform uh, active type management during bull markets, especially when volatility is super low and markets just kind of drift higher, kind of like what we've seen really since the election, right? Volatility has been through the floor. Just look at the VIX. And yet we've just kind of been in this drifting mode as far as markets have been concerned. And uh, and so it's not uncommon to have a, a market outperforming an active management system during that time. The current bull market recovery, as we've talked about almost ad nauseum, has been clearly supported by Fed's monetary policy. We've defined a million times how the Fed is the final arbiter of bull and bear markets, right? This whole thing has been very carefully managed to create a wealth effect. I mean, at the end of the day, wealth effect is very real. If people consistently see the values of their real estate and the values of their stock and bond portfolios go up, they will be more apt and more comfortable to spend. 
and if our economy is in fact structured in such a manner that two thirds of it is related to consumer spending, <laughs> sure. Anyone that says that the wealth effect does not have an effect is not paying attention. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> because it is. So obviously to promote spending, the Fed has, in our opinion, intentionally created some asset bubbles and they've managed to keep volatility really pretty low while asset prices have consistently been, you know, on the move. So naturally, passive type indexes look really good as markets move higher. They're simply designed to replicate an index and so therefore, they've got this symmetrical return profile. Unfortunately, what people often forget about is that same symmetry that investors like so much on the way up is what causes the most financial harm on the way down. In bear markets, passive investment products, indexes, things of that nature, can fall just as much as the index. We've seen it happen, 50%. That happened in 2000 and in 2008. Mm -hmm. It's time for investors... And in many instances, advisors that might be giving these investors this guidance to pause long enough to remember those catastrophic losses. If you're unwilling to recognize, one, what a bubble looks like, or two, what a bear market looks like, then if you think that passive investing is, in fact, the next greatest thing since sliced bread, and it's the only thing that will ever work, then you're setting yourself up for what we think could be a liquidity trap, right? Mm -hmm. We think that the main reason for a potential liquidity trap is because of access to financial information, and it's been so democratized over the last several years. I mean, let's face it. The Internet's allowed financial information and data to be instantly disseminated to retail investors. And when I say a retail investor, I'm talking about Uncle Bob and Aunt Mabel, the, just right. the average investor on the street. In turn, this has synchronized investor behavioral biases. It, it's made markets become much, much more susceptible to major shifts in investor psychology. How many times have we talked about how sentiment, clearly focused on investor psychology, has become more and more and more difficult to read? Oh, yeah, especially over the last, what, two years probably. It's been super, super hard. We've gotten these, these dramatic shifts, and it's a function of behavioral biases that take place. So when investors downshift from excessive optimism that, you know, we kind of think is where we're at right now, to pessimism, well, the ensuing move to sell overpriced assets may cause another liquidity trap event. In other words, the concentration in passive index products points to the possibility that, that future bear market cycles could, in fact, develop much, much faster, could provide a much deeper move, and therefore a much more damaging movement than previous cycles. If everybody is in one thing and everybody wants to sell that one thing, what happens to the one thing? <laughs> it gets blown up. Well, if that one thing happens to be directly focused on a large portion of the market, for example, S&P 500 index funds, well, what does that do to the S&P? I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to follow the bouncing ball here and see what we think could potentially take place if, in fact, we do get ourselves into a midst of a bear market. And guess what? Newsflash, Mike. We will have a bear market again. At some point, sure. It's, it's going to happen. Another example of the importance of sentiment as an indicator. It almost it, trumps the other two in a way, it seems. In many cases, it does. And, and it has, to some degree, over the last couple of years, just made you know this game a much, much, uh, it, a much more interesting game, if you want to call it interesting, but certainly a much more... Um, frustrating game, you know, to, to one degree or another. Um, the Fed has a very long history of raising rates 
too much and at the wrong time. Yeah. Mm. You remember about six months ago, the comment that I made, I said, if in fact we get into a bear market, it's likely to happen for one reason and one reason only. And that's because of a policy mistake by the Fed. Right. The Fed, in essence, it's the all-powerful Oz determining everything. The all-powerful Oz. And my comment then was the policy mistake would be that they raise rates too quickly and too much. You know, and it's not like the economy is just growing gangbusters yet. I mean, people have priced in a fairly strong economic movement since the election. And if we don't get off the bubble of, you know, 2% GDP growth, then something's got to give, you know? I mean, the economy was growing at a 2.6% annual rate in 2015 when the, the Fed hiked rates by a quarter point. They, they rationalized back then that, that, in terms of the hike, they rationalized that by, by saying essentially that the economy could handle these, this small rate increase, especially after holding rates at, at zero for seven years. Remember all the conversations mm, that went on sure. in the media? Unfortunately, what we think has taken place is that hike has caused GDP to slow even more. You know, last year it was 1.6%, or in, yeah, 2016 it was 1.6%. So, I mean, we just don't have this massive amount of GDP growth yet. Now, now could it happen? Yep, it absolutely could. But nothing has changed in terms of current economic structure compared to where we were mid-last year. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, because, of course, when Trump was elected, we then saw the markets do very well for the first month or two and setting new highs. And, I mean, the the S&P and everything, they're still up there. But do you sense the overall... Uh, the overall threat of optimism from everybody paying attention to his economic policies, thinking these are going to be as good for small business and everything as they originally thought? Well, I can tell you this. The, the way in which he has communicated them, that if, in fact, they get in place, yes, they will be extremely powerful and extremely beneficial for the economy at large. And we will, in fact, see massive, more uh, economic growth than what we've experienced anyway. But that means we've got to get tax reform in place. We do have to get this health care thing put to bed. We've got to see a, a fairly strong change in the regulatory structure. Um, these three things haven't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So markets are still pricing in gains based on something that has not yet happened. And yet the Fed, under intense pressure to try and normalize interest rates, has, of course, raised interest rates again <laughs> yep. and anticipate another three times this year. So. It's hard to say how the effect of that might happen, but we know this. We know that it takes about six months, sometimes a little bit longer, for the Fed to see the full effect of any rate hike that they've put in place. Okay, yeah. So on one hand, to some degree, it was a little bit surprising. You know, I wasn't super surprised, but I still held out hope that they weren't going to raise rates in March. But, you know, they did. Um but let's look at just some of the basic facts. The economy is still reasonably weak. Now, again, we're getting some decent earnings right now, but how much of that is financially structured where companies are borrowing money at very low interest rates and buying back shares and, and doing things of that nature to cause some of this or this earnings growth? It, it It's happening. So the fact of the, mar- the matter is, is that we have not gotten in place those things that we think could, in fact, really make our economic structure do, do, do much better. And if we get it, okay, we're going to be having a different conversation then. In 2015, the rate hike that took place at that time 
caused the economy to slow down by roughly 38% from 2.6% in 2015 to 1.6% in 2016. That's a pretty That's big drop-off. It's a huge drop-off. It's a fact. You can, the numbers don't lie. The economy right now is projected to slow again in 2017 with Q1 forecasts at roughly around 1% of GDP growth. Now, that's before the effects of any of these rate hikes that have just taken place ultimately get worked into the system. So we're just very, very careful about what's going on as it relates to Fed activity because it's not really being talked about a whole lot anymore. You know, hey, the Fed met, great. The market gives us a great big whole hum when they raise rates. Now, that's, that's not incredibly abnormal, but it's not incredibly normal either. <laughs> At some point, these rate hikes could, in fact, torpedo the entire economy. And that's what I meant when I said the, the Fed could create an economic problem by a policy error. And the policy error is raising too much in the midst of an economic environment that's just not overheating. I mean, how can you say that the economy is overheating if you drop in terms of total GDP from, from one year to the next? So does that change your idea of they're going to make multiple rate hikes this year? You were talking, I think, upwards of four? Yeah, we anticipated somewhere between three and four total. Um, our expectation of that has not yet changed, only because Fed Fund futures have not dramatically changed yet either. So it appears that most people are anticipating it to get priced in. And I do believe that the Fed, based on the comments that they've made and the papers that we've been able to read, at least at this point in time, are pointing to the fact that they will continue to raise rates. Okay. Now, if you're a saver, you're probably a pretty happy person because you're at least getting a little bit more interest on your dead money sitting at a bank savings account or checking account or CD. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know those rising interest rates are going to do one of two things. They're either going to cause the economy to slow itself down and ultimately get into a contraction. How will we know that that's taking place? Look at the yield curve. If you look at the yield curve, you can get a very good indication of whether or not we, in the economy, are slowing down and markets are causing a problem. Now, have you looked at the 10-year Treasury bond recently? I have not. I'm depressed, Mike. I expected you to be on, to be paying attention to that Number no. <laughs> the ten-year Treasury rate right now is down to two point two three percent. Okay. Right? Now, if we continue to get the Fed raising rates on the short end, and the ten-year Treasury does not want to move commensurate with those rate hikes that are happening on the short end, what happens to the yield curve? It inverts. If we get an inverted yield curve, it's a very high probability that we ultimately fall into a recession. The yield curve has been one of the most valuable indicators in terms of being able to time recessions in the history of the world. So it's not something we want to ignore. Now, right now, it's still priced at a fairly decent slope. From an investor standpoint, we're not worried about the yield curve yet. But if we keep getting a Fed raising rates and we keep getting a movement in, in, in the longer end of the yield curve of what it's been doing, then clearly we we are going to be concerned about that. And And we have obviously you know, been concerned about the aging possibilities of this bear market. We've been concerned about the degree of risk that is in the market by way of what we're seeing due to investor sentiment. We're concerned about the fact that we do have these overvaluations. But again, that's not a bubble. The only bubble that could potentially exist is the psychological shift that seems to be happening over the past few years of people just piling money blindly 
into the indexes Mm -hmm. in anticipation and hope that it'll just keep going up like everybody has felt like it's been doing over the past several years. All right. Well, we'll get some final thoughts on this in our last segment. We've only got a couple of minutes left. He is Chris Clyde. I am Mike Pilch, and this is Muddy Talks with Capstone Wealth Management. This is our final segment. I am Mike Pilch along with Chris Clyde of Capstone Wealth Management. Chris, uh, we've got some discussion of can taxes actually be worse than people think right now? Right, right. Hey, before I jump into that, let me leave you this one thought as it relates to market valuation, right? Currently, it takes 108 hours of work to buy one S&P, all right? S&P 500. The last time that we were at these levels, 2000. No. Is that to suggest we're going to get what we got in 2000? No, but for anyone who might suggest that the current valuation of the indexes are not elevated, again, they're not paying attention. So <laughs> just leave you with that bit of information. Um, taxes, yeah. Do, they think that they're, do, do I think that they're worse than many people think? I do. Did you know, and you would know this because you're a history buff, that prior to 1913, you got to keep all your earnings? Um, I would have guessed it was later than that, actually. Yeah, 1913 was when the uh, federal income tax was first introduced. And it used to be a lot simpler. Um, by the way, I, I put up on my Twitter feed, which is uh, at Care for My Wealth, a picture of what the, the, uh, uh, of what the uh, income tax return was in 1913. And it's a postcard. <laughs> it, it was essentially a very short one-page type return. There were only four pages oh, total. Okay. On the, there were only four pages total on the 1040, and that included two pages of worksheets. So, the vast, the simplicity was just way, way different than today. Today, without any forms, you're, you're talking just the, the the pages itself, like our 105, 110 pages. Right. It's just, it's crazy. Everything was simpler then, in some ways, Chris. Come on. Well, it was. I actually simpler. thought the income tax started during the Second World War. Oh, well, hey, I feel pretty good about telling the history buff something that he didn't know yeah. about history. Muy interesante. Yes, indeed. I, now, I'd rather go back to 1913 in terms of rates, too. Rates started at 1% in 1913, and, and interestingly enough, um, the margin at the top, the highest marginal income tax bracket was only 7%, and that was only on incomes above a half a million bucks. And to give you a comparison, that would mean in today's dollars, $12 million is where right. the 7% income tax would kick in gear. <laughs> the personal exemption back in 2013 was an equivalent today of 72850 bucks or 97000 for married couples. Oh, most wow. people wouldn't. Yeah. If your personal exemption was ninety seven grand, most people wouldn't pay any income tax at all. That's amazing. <clears throat> and again, very few people paid income taxes back in 1913. The average income back then was like seven hundred and fifty bucks a year, and so yeah. if your personal exemption was three thousand bucks or four thousand if you're married, of course you're not going to pay tax. About seven hundred fifty thousand a year. Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker were making about ten grand a year to put that in perspective. Even though players not, never got paid much back then, right? Yeah, right. So you can get a glimpse into how much money that was then. But right. here's what I really found interesting. So up until nineteen thirteen, you as an American worker got to keep all of your earnings. But despite that, we in America had schools. We had roads, mm-hmm. we had colleges, we had a vast array of railroads, you had some subways, and you had an army and a navy. 
again, why do we have the income tax situation that we have today? For some people who believe that tax reform is not needed, again, I think a little a little bit of time spent in the history books would would give you a, a better glimpse into why it's important and why markets are so pent up on wanting it to happen. Right. <laughs> so, keep your eye out on what might be happening with tax reform. Be cautious of the fact that we are overvalued, but we're not in a bubble, and investor sentiment is still elevated, creating some risks in markets that can cut you off guard. All right. How do people get a hold of you, Chris? Toll-free, 866-596-9886, or uh, info at careformywealth.com. And there's a few seats left, by the way, for our our software offer for uh, financial planning. Okay. How do you do that? Just send us an email, info at careformywealth.com, and say, hey, save my seat for the uh, financial planning portal. All right. He's Chris Klein. I'm Mike Pilch. Talk to you in a week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.